you never know what you're doing in your pursuit of excellence, whether it is a proven playbook or not, until you actually win. Because each of us are built differently, which is not like trading, which is not like medicine, which is not like the law, uh, which have got ca you know, canons and you can you know work out how you can be a trader or a lawyer or a doctor or a surgeon. But it's very individual, it's psychological, psychosomatic, physiological, there's a whole bunch of things going on. And he said, look, the morning after I won the gold medal, the world wanted me to react a particular way. And I'd spent the previous 10 years keeping myself calm. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today, I'm super excited about sitting down and having a great conversation with a storyteller, change agent, digital media expert, and startup innovator in emerging markets. He has lived in Delhi, Johannesburg, New York, London, and now in Singapore, helping enable diverse organizations grow their relevance, reach, or revenue by helping telling a better story. He has a bachelor's degree in history from St. Stephen's College, master's in international relations from the University of Cambridge, an MBA strategy and entrepreneurship from London Business School, and an MBA in entertainment, media and technology on exchange at NYU Stern School of Business. Now his career has included many roles uh, as a TV reporter for Star News in India, where he interviewed cricket superstars, Anil Kumble and Sachin Tendulkar. He's worked at IMG, the Press Association, World Sailing League, ESPN Star Sports, BBC, you name it, he's pretty much been there in the media world. He's currently the founder of Pitcherboard Partners, Mentor Sport Tech Tokyo, and Steering Committee member for Go Sports Foundation. I'm honored and privileged to introduce to you a passionate cricket fan, and I'm sure we can delve into that with the recent uh, World Series uh, for Test Match. Travel enthusiast, cross-cultural uh, enabler, and loves harnessing the power of listening in storytelling. Unmush Patasarati. Unmush, welcome to the show. Greg, thank you very much. Um, and, and thank you very much for, uh, for, for having me. Um, I was kind of, I always get sort of mildly embarrassed um, and sometimes majorly embarrassed when I'm introduced and uh, seem to be an overqualified underachiever uh, from an academic certification perspective. Um, but it's it's been it's been a fun journey the last twenty years. Uh, one one's obviously been in sectors and industries and markets where there's been a lack of structure. Uh, 
Mm. Um, so one sort of made it up as one's gone along. Um, and uh, as we'll hopefully come on to, a lot of that got to do with my childhood in India and playing the sport of cricket to a fairly competitive level and what that's taught us to adapt. Um, and I always say that, look, it looks extremely logical and linear in terms of career progression. But believe you me, that's more the sort of driving at a 90 miles an hour down a highway looking in the rear view mirror, where you <laughs> didn't quite know where you were going, but by the time you look back on it, um, it seems pretty okay on the surface at least. But great to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, it certainly does. And look, you know, we're talking about story here and you'll, and you'll hear this through throughout this conversation. But for you, what is the most compelling story of 2021? I think it's been one of gratitude um, and it's been one of humility uh, and it's been one of reflection. Just, you know, speaking from um, a personal perspective, a filial perspective, um, you know, clients, colleagues, customers who increasingly have become, you know, friends. Um, uh, so that's my first point. My second point is I think the 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 fragility of life and the fragility of economic sustenance uh, and the good life that we've had the last 20 years uh, of physical mobility travel and you know all that kind of stuff which came with it i think that's been very humbling for people uh and you know people have had to look inward with themselves and those around them so that's my second point but i think thirdly it's i think the, the tides turned in the last i would say two three months Definitely from sitting here in Singapore and looking at, you know, Oz New Zealand or Japan, Korea or India or Southeast Asia or even the Middle East, which is broadly the sort of sandbox I play in, um, where, you know, people have sort of come to the second or the third wave and they sort of know what the reality is. Um, and, you know, one's not always good at expecting things to happen and then accepting them when they do. And that's actually born of the privileged life we've had the last 20 years. So I think there's been a bit of a calibration. But I think I would say broadly it's gratitude uh, and, and hence one of calibration. Uh, mm. But uh, yeah, that's, I, I'd stop there. You talked about there about uh, the sandbox you play in. Now, I'd love to know where your sandbox was when you were a child. So where did you grow up? And for you, what was kind of, uh, what kind of played in your, what were the kind of stories you had in your mind when you were a child? I, I was I was I'm I was born and bred in Delhi. Uh, well, I was bred and born in Delhi, I guess. Uh, went to school there uh, for the first 12, 15 years of my life. Uh, went to university at St Stephen's. Uh, played for university at Delhi University. Uh, played competitive cricket from very early on, from the age of twelve till about twenty. I was playing anything between twenty and forty hours a week. Um, had my share of injuries and all the rest of that. But, um, you know, my, my, my memories are really about playing a lot of cricket. It was safe to play outside from a physical and a societal perspective. The air was clean. Uh, the urban congestion wasn't there. Uh, so, and it was very regular. You know, you get your homework, you come down, you have a glass of milk and you go out and play and you come back by 6.30 before sun's out. And if you want, you're, you know, one shout away uh, from being called back home. Uh, so that was one, one distinct memory. The second memory really was around, um, the school I went to, which was, um, quite a, quite a different school in the sense that it was a private independent day school. It was a relatively small school compared to Delhi. Um, it was very much the medium of instruction was in Hindi. 
a lot of people are surprised when they when I say that uh, I didn't speak English fluently till I was about I would say ten. Uh, to the point that my grandfather, who was from the south of India in Madras, was called Chennai, couldn't take me down for a holiday because I didn't speak Tamil, I didn't speak English, they didn't speak Hindi, uh, and, and you know, so there was a there was there was literally a communications gap. So only went down. My brother used to go down, but I never went down. But you know, it, it's so it, even now I do my tables and mats in Hindi. Hmm. You know, uh, so instead of seven, eight, seven, fifty-six, I'll say after the chapan. And you know, so it's deeply ingrained, and it, there, there's a there's a sense of Indianness which um, has never left me, and I hope it never does, because I've been out 20, 25 years, lived in different countries and cultures, as you mentioned, and I am a nomad, and I've enjoyed the journey. Uh, but uh, there, there's the Hindi piece to it, which hasn't changed, and what that brought with it. Uh, and then the last piece really was uh, just 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 a peer group, uh, you know, from my age group, which. Um, have we're still in touch with i'm still in touch with the folks i played gully cricket with and they're senior folks now uh in the industry uh they are people who've been through personal tragedy uh they are people who recently uh craig in may when the second wave of COVID hit india delhi was the epicenter mm. uh and i lost 17 first connects lost 17 first connects so you know you, that whole intimacy comes back but very happy days of, of being born and brought up in Delhi um, and playing cricket for Delhi. Um, and, in, you know, I wouldn't say being educated at, but but attending education institutions because cricket always was a very big part of my life and it was always a scramble to get grades. But the deal with my parents was that I could play whatever I did so long as I had a certain, you know, 90% percentile in the class. Uh, and it was interesting. It wasn't a classic Indian, you know, demanding Indian parents. Uh, they just felt that it's possible for one to pursue something passionately at an at a extracurricular level, but yet not the curricular and co-curricular to suffer. It's down to time management. Yeah. You know, if it means you go to one less Bollywood movie a week, and if you, you know, come back early from a party and, you know, miss a few things, but the trade-off, or, you know, the child needs to be able to appreciate that. I'm very thankful to them about that because they set boundaries, but they didn't put any... Um, they told me about the what and the why. They never said how and when. And, you know, even today, what I do, it's a portfolio career. We have multiple clients, across multiple time zones. That ability to manage time uh, and differentiate between urgent and important has, has really helped me in good stead. Yeah, very good. I love the approach. And I, and I loved how you talked about, you know, the Hindi and how that's still a big part of you. Uh, I've really found recently that my connection with uh, the Māori, the Aboriginal language in New Zealand, I've found myself really connected with that again over the last sort of uh, eight to eight to 12 months. And so I tend to use a lot of words again. It's, it's really fascinating how it's come back into my life uh, from where I grew up in New Zealand. So I really like that aspect. As you were going through kind of the, the teenage years and, and moving into uh, your university stages as well when you were studying, was there anyone who really stood out outside of your parents as being a really strong role model for who you are today? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was very lucky. I've been, I've been very lucky to literally bump into or fall into company uh, all my life. I've been very lucky about that. Um, and it's something which I've been very conscious of for about 15 years, since my 30s. Uh, and I value that a lot. Um, um, 
you know, the, the, the person who was a father to me uh, was my cricket coach. Um, and he is, um, he ended up being the national coach of the Indian cricket team as well. Uh, and he's a diminutive Sikh gentleman called Gurcharan Singh. So, as we call him, um, this man lost his father during partition. He was born and raised in Lahore, Pakistan. Uh, all he had was a was a bamboo and rope charpoy, which is a cot mm. on which he put his mother and he walked 400 kilometers uh, over four weeks and came into Patiala in Punjab and uh, was playing cricket when the prince of Patiala one day saw that this kid's pretty good. And he said, come, 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 come. You should play with me. You should bowl to me. Um, and he did. And then he got the patronage and he sort of built a life for himself since there you know you have the australian institute of sport ais in canberra yeah. uh the indian equivalent the nis the national institute of sport began in patiala in punjab oh, which wow. is the city that gujaran sir was in so he then went from there okay how do i get a certification went from there and became a cricket coach and like a lot of good coaches he was um he was not as good a player as his peers who went on to actually have professional careers uh, which I think is a very important sort of trait in in, in being a coach. Uh, and then he came to Delhi, and it just so happened that when I was keen to play cricket, uh, he was the coach at the National Institute of Sport in Delhi, and um, he's probably the man who has um, influenced me. I would say by a multiple compared to uh, the influence of, of my father, and my father was a was, you know, we had a you know we had a decent relationship, but he was a very reserved man in terms of the the son father relationship. I think it reflected his father's relationship. So there was you know there wasn't much to give without asking. Yeah. Whereas with Gujaran sir, oh you got it, you got it if you didn't do well, and you got it if you did do well. Um, and um, and that was a very deep bond. Uh, I mean to the point that. When I met the lady at the BBC in London, who is today, you know, thankfully my wife and still my wife through COVID and the mother of our child, um, I want, and when she came to meet my parents in Delhi, uh, I wanted him, I wanted her to meet him, my coach. Hmm. Um, and we, I found a game that he was going to be at and I you know, took her there and I, my mom came along as well, which was quite nice. And we sort of went and spent an afternoon there and, you know, his English is English, and you know my English flaws. Hindi is Hindi, but you know, so it was it was a very interesting dynamic. But she could very clearly see that this is something which means a lot to me. So I think that was the biggest influence, and it still remains. I mean, Touchwood is eighty four; he's still doing well. He's still coaching. He's got a thousand kids at his academy now, and he's today produced, I think, about a dozen international cricketers, and I would say close to a hundred first class players. Yeah. So, you know, to get someone like that when you're 12, um, you know, it's, it was very, very lucky. Um, so, and, you know, I, I think he realized very early on that I was good, but I wasn't good enough. Um, and he always let me know that in a nice kind of way, saying, optimize yourself. You know, optimize yourself as a player. You're not the quickest bowler. You're not the most explosive batsman, but you're pretty good at both. You understand how to manage batsmen and bowlers, or batters, as the SMCC calls it now. Yeah. Um, and you're a pretty decent captain. And that, you know, the, the, the urge, the instinct to optimize oneself um, has become a muscle from very early on. Because that's the only way to survive. Because he pushed me 
to actually play outside of my comfort zone. And the only way I could not embarrass myself uh, was to optimize what he said I had and go find it. Um, so yeah, it was, he was he was a great influence. You know, we are still very much in touch. I often talk about him on LinkedIn to my to my to my network uh, because I was I'm blessed. I'm extremely blessed to to have him as a coach. He eventually sort of uh, got the Dronacharya Award. Dronacharya Award is the highest coaching accolade. Uh, so, you know, Ramakant Achrekar, who was Sachin Tendulkar's coach, got it. Uh, but Gutteran sir got it before him. Mm. So, you know, so very, very lucky. Very lucky. Very grateful. Yeah, we're, we're fortunate to get certain people who come into our life who have a major influence on on our, the way we are and how we evolve as well. Really curious, obviously you, you talked about finishing sport around 20 and you've got quite a number of academic degrees and, and masters and a level as well. For you, where did the world of media come into play and how did you find yourself in those roles? Oh, completely by accident and desire. Um, uh, I uh, So again, you know, it's... It's about reading the tea leaves. So think of this in the early 90s, uh, which is when I was at university. I've always done debating and theater and the choir at school. So that, that that you know, there was never that reticence. Nobody who's met me would actually accuse me of reticence. So, you know, that kind of help is the articulation piece, which I've been sort of working on the last few years to make sense when I open my gob. Um, but, but, but jokes apart, you know, in the early 90s, when I was at university, two or three things were happening. One, the radio spectrum was being sold at an FM level rather than uh, rather an AM level, which led to youth stations coming up and all that kind of stuff. That was one piece. Uh, newspapers were going color, and they began to have Saturday supplements because they had drug advertising. Uh, so there was that piece to it. And pay television, literally sequentially, on, on, a, on a sort of 18-month window, these things happened from 91 to 95. Pay television boomed out of nowhere. You know, with Rupert Murdoch, Star TV, you know, sort of, sort of broadcasting out of Hong Kong on a satellite basis and the cable industry sort of picking it up. All these three things happened sort of 1991, 92, right? And that was me at university. And I'd taken a year out uh, at university in my second year to play cricket full time, which was a very rare thing. We can come back to that because, people, because I needed to commit my time. And that was my father's suggestion, actually, which I'm ever grateful to him because it changed my life. And so, you know, there were there I was sort of, you know, mingling and doing what I do. And um, somebody said to me that, oh, there's a there's there's talk of a youth program um, on 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 Fridays, Friday evenings or Saturday evenings called Crossroads. So the idea being, you know, teenagers are at crossroads. They make so many decisions, mm. you know, from relationships to academics, to careers, to friendships, to, you know, peer group pressure, clothing, whatever the case might be. Uh, and there's a whole conversation to be had that, you know, if, if you had three speakers and a, and, a, and a moderator, what would that show look like? A one-hour show and you you know, have a thematic. So me being me said, oh, that sounds like fun. And I literally, I remember I was on a cycle and I probably biked about eight, 10 kilometers through Delhi. It shows how secure Delhi was from a traffic perspective. This was a, you know, 20-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid who sort of, cycle across the all in their radio went and you know all, i don't know if you've been to the bbc or abc i guess and all it's you know it's like a, it's like a it's like a warren you know you go into the building and what floor and went there 
and uh, found the person and then spoke to her, told her who I was. And she just looked at me quizzically saying, who are you? Uh, and, uh, and she said, okay, do me a favor, write me a one pager, which again is a skill to this day when a client comes back with scope of work, I do a one pager. Mm. Uh, and I did a one pager and I said, I said, this is what the thinking is. This is what the audience could be. These are the things we could do. And this is similar to what I used to do at school. And she said, okay, come in, let's do a pilot. And we did. And it was great fun because I got to be paid, I think it was a hundred rupees. And my friends got to be paid 35 rupees each. Uh, who are my guests? So for 200 rupees, princely sum, you know, hundred rupees for a show at a time when my my term fees were 700. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's quite a lot of money. Um, and uh, so we got that and I did that for about a year and a bit every Friday. I was a very popular man on campus till about Tuesday when the names had to go in. And then everybody just dropped me from their social circles <laughs> Wednesday morning if they hadn't been asked. So that was one. The other was uh, newspapers. Um, so, you know, I began seeing these supplements and uh, I, I enjoyed the idea of writing. I always have. Um, and I saw, and I was reading a lot. I read a lot. I read a lot on sport. I read a lot on, on autobiographies. I'm a huge fan of autobiographies. And then from there, you know, self-learning and stuff. Um, and uh, I remember Martin Crow came out with a book. Uh, this would have been 93, so after World Cup. You know, famous World Cup, Deepa Patel, white ball, phenomenal, didn't play with the injury in the semifinals, went off the field, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and, uh, and he came out with a brilliant book. And uh, I loved it. I, I, he was my idol growing up, him and Ram Khan. And, um, and I, again, serendipity bumped into somebody who was the weekend editor of a particular newspaper who I had read and who I liked. And they were co covering, it was a newspaper called The Asian Age. Uh, where they were, you know, it's like, a bit like the Australian. For the first time, there was a pan-regional newspaper which was being done for an audience which was very, very parochial. So they needed something which is very different. Uh, so I went to them and said, you know, I've got this idea. It's a lovely, lovely book. And what do we do? Oh, we were thinking of doing a book review section because it gets advertising. We can get Penguin to actually buy a spot between it. I'm like, okay, so here we are. Off we go. Um, and this would have been around March, April time. Uh, and then in 93, I, uh, 93, there was an England off spinner called Sean Udall who played for England in 1994. I played against Sean in the leagues two summers before that. And I said, he's come in, I can do a profile for you of knowing him and you know, the beautiful ground he was at and, you know, how he hit me for six and all that kind of stuff. Wasn't the first and wasn't the last. Uh, so they said, yeah, fine, do it. 300 words, same, same contract. And eventually my first sort of syndicating column contract was one rupee a word. Um, and eventually by 95, that became 300 rupees a week, which is a lot of money. Uh, so I ended up actually paying for my uh, for my second and third year of undergrad entirely by myself, uh, which was which was great. Um, and then and then and then when I graduated, I was looking to sort of enter television. The pay television boom boom had started. A friend of mine was a graphics artist uh, at at NDTV, which is New Delhi Television. And uh, I said, "Look, what do you think?" He said, "No, no, 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 no. You got to go and meet this guy called Peter Hutton." I said, "Who is he?" Oh, no, no, no. He's, he's, he's begun a company called ING, uh, or TWI, as the media division was called, and he's looking for people. I'm like, fine. So I give Peter a call. Again, this is like walking into the room or in the radio, you know, but instead I give Peter a call. This is pre-mobile phone days, right? 
So I leave a message for him. This is my numbers who are set and at a reception. And he calls me back. I'm not home. And I call him back. We finally speak. I said, hey, uh, come in with your CV. And I still remember his words. He said, come in with your CV. Let's see how real it is. Because, you know, <laughs> CV is always a puff piece, right? I went and met Peter. And today, Peter is head of sport at Facebook out of Mountain View. And he's one of my biggest mentors. So after my cricket coach in my teens, I think Peter was probably the biggest mentor I had starting out. Um, uh, he probably hate to be embarrassed to be called that, but I know I'm not the only one who says that because he literally, literally bred an entire third generation of, of, of you know, sports media professionals in in India. Um, it was a 30 year old Yorkshireman who came to India, spent a decade, you know, uh, met his wife, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So that was paid television, and then I, and then I, I didn't even realize what IMG was because it was TWI as the media business was then called. Uh, I'd heard of McCormack and I'd heard of ING and I'd heard about, you know, what they don't teach you how the business school. But then immediately after that, and I came back from the interview, went to the bookshop, bought the book, read the book, and I've read the book ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was radio, it was print, and it was paid television, just pure serendipity. But, you know, once you've got the, you know, once you've got something, you, you hold on to it and try to make the most of it, which goes back to optimization piece. So very lucky, very, very lucky, uh, but also pretty prepared and hungry. Mm. Yeah, it's really, really good. I like great, great experiences along the way to get to where you are as well. Now, kind of combining kind of the sport and into the entertainment, you you talked about radio there as well. And I, I know talking to, you know, some of my grandparents and things like that, when they were f- first consuming sport was over the radio, right? And and I still love listening to sport on radio because they, they paint a picture, right? A, a visual a real state yeah. they curate it and experience through story uh, you know obviously that's we've seen that come alive a lot more now on tv and that as well you know for you what do you think is what what why is story so effective for people who are consuming sport or they're trying to understand something in the world i think it's just I think we're hardwired. It's probably almost the first social interactions we have as 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 toddlers. You know, um, the, the the and it, it's so true of our lives. The once upon a time is very true of our lives. The happily live ever after may not be, but once upon a time definitely is. And it's it's an instinct. It's an emotion. It's a muscle, which is inculcated by someone you trust which is a parent or a grandparent or somebody else. Uh, so you almost associate, you know, the verbal gymnastics, the painting with pictures um, with a very positive, trusted, assured experience. And I don't think that ever leaves us. Um, so I, that, that's, that's my theory for what it's worth. Uh, and I've just done put that, you know, put myself in that, 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 um, in, in, in that mode, and it, it seems to resonate. Um, you know, even when you spoke to me about what was it like growing up, these are very intimate moments of your life. Mm. Um, and I'm sure you could go back and do a tonal analysis of me talking about, you know, stuff in industry or clients, whatever, as opposed to my tone when I was talking about my childhood, I'd be three decibels levels below uh, because it is very, it's close to the heart. So I think there's, I think there's, there's a muscle which all of us develop over time. That's one. Two, I think, um, Everybody wants to learn, but often they don't or they aren't able to 
find the ways and means to learn the way they do. So a lot of times when we work with clients, I say, okay, how can I communicate with you? What are you best at? Emails, WhatsApp, iMessage, phone call. You know, that's one thing. Two, you know, when I'm thinking, talking to learning and development folks or the strategy folks and I'm sort of doing a workshop, I'm like, what should I use more? Video, you know, PowerPoint, breakout sessions. How? What are the cognitive skills that your team have got, which is the culture of the company? And then let me use that or rather than me come with my own sort of you know, diverse message. What, you know, famous... Canadian anthropologist um, Harold Ennis and Marshall McLuhan spoke about famous book, The Medium is a Message. Uh, and the book cover came out with The Medium is a Massage. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> but again, the, the whole idea is how the story can be modulated and should be modulated by the audience and by the medium through which the articulation of that thought is being done. Uh, so I think there's a second element there, right? Because you start with picture books and cartoons and Peppa Pig, and then you move on to narratives and you know plots and characters, and from there you go into comics, from there you go into books. We had that with our 11-year-old, how she's graduated through COVID. I've seen that firsthand. So then there's a second piece there about respecting how people learn differently, and therefore the story needed to be modulated. And the last piece, which I think is very particular in the last 10 years, is there is a lot of stuff out there. And you know it's very hard to distill and sift through what's relevant for you. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of imposter syndrome. You know, so if someone can still talk to you, be, talk to you in a way and about issues which are similar to what grandma or or dad did growing up, sitting in your front porch, that's effective. Mm. Because on you know we have a sea of plenty, but we're still on a dinghy, and the waves are large. So you know, it's it's more about situating the audience, uh, going back to where they were at, you know, congenitally, uh, and then and then working through that. It's, it's, it's a very important piece. Mm. Now working with, in, in sport, and I'm gonna tie this in a little bit here. So working with sport, you know, obviously, um, fan engagement uh, has, has become, you know, like it's so important in, inside the media world. Uh, for anyone who's doing events or entertainment, you know, how do we keep people engaged? Do you see fan engagement shifting? Um, you know, obviously now we've kind of been in isolation, things have changed, the, the way we consume stuff is a little bit different now as well. How do you see fan engagement shifting, especially around the use of story over the next few years? Great question. I think it already has. Um, I think fan engagement probably had its day by 2018, but COVID's required us to re-articulate what the relationship is. Um, I'd even sort of stick my neck out and say fan engagement is still a very patronizing and hence, hence unequal relationship. You know, I will engage you like a child. Hello, child. Come sit down next to me. Here, Tom, have a seat. Let me tell you a story. I think, I think mental health, uh, you know, the, the gender equality and black lives, all that's actually modulated a conversation whereby I think three things. One, um, I think the fan needs to, I think fan inclusion now is the new, is a new black, is a new norm rather than fan engagement. It's fan inclusion is because you include people on an equal basis. It may be an animal farm type basis, but it's still optically an equal basis. So I think fan inclusion is important. Two, I think, especially in the Western economies where ticketing and merchandise and mass share revenue is very large, people have realized that fans are a customer 
And whilst we've been harvesting their loyalty for generations and for you know their loyalty built up over generations and their loyalty at the till over the last three decades, we haven't really worked out who they are and what you know what their preferences might be and like you would for a for a for a consumer like a Unilever or a PNG would do for a consumer or an Amazon does for a consumer. So I think there's a fan as a customer, and a customer is something who needs to be serviced, who needs to be listened to. And who can vote with their feet and their wallets? So I think there's that second recognition. So I think fan engagement has sort of moved from fan, fan, from, from fan engagement to fan inclusion, and from fan as a fan where we harvest loyalty to fan as a customer, as a being who has got options. Um, and then I think there's a fan as a citizen, where you know today, federation, leagues, clubs, players, venues, governments. Uh, are increasingly, I wouldn't say being asked, but they benefit by articulating their position on certain issues which are linked to sport, but have a societal impact. So, which was sort of bubbling in the surface till about 2018, but it's really come on. You know, this debate around Tokyo um, and 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 you know, the Black Lives Matter and taking the knee or the mental health of athletes. Because a lot of athletes, and I'm involved with the Go Sports Foundation in, in Bangalore, and we do Olympic pathways for talent. You know, there were they were about 30 odd athletes, or probably a bit more across the, the, the para and the Olympics. And they had been training for the last 36 months for Tokyo in July, August of 20. And if you know anybody, you know, you 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 know, you're an athlete yourself, you if to suddenly recalibrate that and give yourself 12 months more, it's pretty hard. So I, I think you know I think I think I think gender equality, uh, race, uh, and mental health have come into the fore as something which is a very important part of athletes, um, and I think athletes have become publishers in their own right, you know, letting fans uh, into their backyards uh, through COVID. Um, so so I think I think there's I think there's a whole fan engagement, the fan inclusion. And this fan equals customer. There's an economic basis to it, uh, and and, the, and there's 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 a there's a there's a um, you know the fan of the citizen, which is a, a political. So there's a social element, there's a economic element, and there is a political element. And if you do it as a Venn diagram, uh, you know I think the essence lies in the middle. Uh, you know because all three of these are fairly subjective calls, uh, but that's kind of where I think this entire piece is going and the role of sport to my mind and again this is a big thing to say i think the role of sport in this decade is going to be similar to the role of sport in 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 the 50s after the second world war you know when a lot of men didn't come back and women got a chance to play sport and and the boat when people didn't have means of entertainment and sport became the palliative for a lot of scars uh, when a lot of teenagers didn't know how to expend their energy, but it came down to kicking a ball. Um, I, 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 I genuinely feel that, you know, 70 years hence, we've come around full circle. Uh, but it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, life tends to do that for us. It, I'm not sure it was like there in Asia, but I know here in Australia, Channel 7 did a, an incredible job of kind of shifting that into that kind of fan inclusion space during the Olympics. You know, we were, because 
the families weren't able to be there at the games. We were taken into the families' homes. We were seeing a lot more of the backstory. Like we, we actually, the story was so powerful where we actually got to understand people, the athletes, the, the parents, the coaches, the support. They took us into their lives and made it real yeah. and gave us that, yeah. that kind of connection for us around, you know what? We're all going through the same type of situations. We're all coming, overcoming adversity. We're all separated from those that we love and cherish but we're able to move on. We're able to still achieve. And, and I, I thought that was really, really powerful. And I think that's, uh, it, it was a bit of a game changer for the sports uh, world as well. Um, yeah. I think it was a really, really powerful time. Uh, it's, it's really interesting what you say about, you know, going back to people's, you know, you don't realize what you have until you deny it, right? That's a very basic human emotion. Uh, I still remember even the Olympic guys, you know, they were, they had these, video cameras of the athletes families uh and of course it was sponsored and branded and all that kind of stuff but i would do that if i was them too yeah. and as soon as the athlete had won and the euphoria of having the flag and running around that initial sort of hit had gone they would sort of channel the athlete towards this kind of small video screen where in the meantime they would have worked out which of the eight athletes families they had cameras with and you can do this now on Zoom line and, and, all, and all that kind of stuff. And they had that. And it was just being able to see and find kisses and tears and just the emotion of, of because, you know, sporting excellence, it's not a formula. Yeah. It's not like trading. Uh, it's not like trading. It's not like medicine. You just got to believe the process that you have. Uh, you know, someone I've got to know fairly well in the last decade is a gentleman called Abhinav Bindra who won India's first individual gold at Beijing in shooting. And, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable. And, he, and he, he's written a brilliant book by, by a very dear friend of mine called Rohit Bridgnath, who I think to my mind is amongst the top 10 best, you know, sports writers in English in the world. Uh, he used to write for, for the Melbourne Age and stuff, and now he's here in Singapore. And, you know, they talk in that book about process and how, you never know what you're doing in your pursuit of excellence, whether it is a proven playbook or not, until you actually win. Mm. Because each of us are built differently, which is not like trading, which is not like medicine, which is not like the law, uh, which have got ca you know, canons, and you can you know work out how you can be a trader or a lawyer or a doctor or a surgeon. But it's very individual. It's psychological, psychosomatic, physiological. There's a whole bunch of things going on. And he said, look, the morning after I won the gold medal, the world wanted me to react a particular way. And I'd spent the previous 10 years keeping myself calm. Mm. Because even one millimeter, this was somebody who went to Australia or Germany to have one rib removed so that his gun could settle on his right elbow. That's the commitment. And then to suddenly sort of, and, and so think of it this way, you know, you do something for eight, 10 years, you aren't quite sure what, whether you're doing the right thing or not. Think of the validation you get as an individual. Forget about the world celebrating and the validation you get as somebody who made a series of good choices and held their nerve in the moment. Mm. It's huge. It's massive. Um, and, you know, and sort of, I've gone, I've gone off track, but I think that's kind of, that's the beauty of sport because it, it teaches you a lot um, about so many things without you knowing it. Mm. And, I'm kind of smiling as I'm listening to this conversation and 
And only those who have lived in multiple countries actually get this. You know, if you live in one country, you have a perspective on the world that's generally blinded by what media will share with you. But for you, for someone who's lived in five countries and, um, you know, for me, I've had the same as well. You have these different perspectives on life and you look at things from different angles and it's just making me smile and then you don't have to respond to this. But <laughs> I, I just I just love that fact that I can feel the the connection you have and, and the different perspectives you have because of living in those different places. Um, you, know, you know, Craig, that's also very lucky. Very lucky. Of, uh, luck is a big part. I still remember playing, going to England as a 14-year-old, playing in the leagues as an overseas professional and meeting people there. Who was, oh, your English is very good. Not knowing that I'd only been speaking the language of four years before that. Um, so that was an interesting and inspiring position. Um, I remember going to New York on exchange to NYU Stern in the, in the fall of 2004, which was three years after 9-11. And I had, my choices really were uh, my choices were Shanghai um, and where else was I supposed to go? Um, I think it might have been INSEAD or HSA in France because I wanted to go to a non-Anglophonic country. I chose to go to New York for the program that they were, that were, they were doing. It was brilliant. But just, just, just walking around, and literally the day I landed, the day after I landed was when it was the anniversary and the whole mood of the city changed. And I was like, wow, this is just not my perception of New York. The vulnerability you could smell, feel, and hear of a superpower was humbling. Uh, so that was that experience. Uh, then when I moved to Joba, which again was serendipity, it was literally a coffee with a colleague, senior colleague at, at the BBC, who was pitching for something. And he said, do you know something about something? I said, yeah, I do. And have you looked after newsrooms before? I said, yes, I have. And OK, we've got to go, for, for, go fix one in Joburg. Um, are you okay to go to Joburg? It's not the safest place. I said, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I'm single and a lot of debt from business school. So if somebody's going to pay my bill, I'll, I'll say fine. And living in South Africa in the following 18 months, I was tax resident there for a year as well, you know, apartment, car, all that kind of stuff. I realized that, you know, South Africa in the mid noughties 2005, wouldn't have been different than the mid 60s in India as a post-colonial country which is the country that my parents came back to as, you know, graduates of Cambridge and having studied at, uh, in Boston mm. uh, to sort of build the country um, because there was hope and there was energy and there was you know, unity and purpose and North Star and all that kind of stuff. So it was fascinating. So they gave me a different lens to, I still remember my, I, I was my, 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 my mom, I was talking to my mom and dad and they were sort of say, you know, talking to them about going to Durban or Cape Town or, and they said, yeah, this, this reminds me a lot of what, you know, Delhi and Bombay smelt like and sounded like back in the day. So, it, again, it, it, I wouldn't have expected landing at Oliver Tambo Airport in Joburg to, in the following weeks and months, get a perspective on what it was like for my parents in their 30s. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? Hmm. I'm sure you've had those before. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, and, you know, you, you see things that are well beyond where you originally came from and things that you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> I've seen that one before. <laughs> so yeah, it's quite interesting. <laughs> you talk about luck there and it's interesting, you know, for me, I remember my first kind of really official speech I ever gave, apart from kind of doing a speech at the end of a, a sport event or whatever it may be, but one where I did it at, at high school, the, the kind of the big one at the end of graduation. 
And, and I spoke about luck and that there was no, thing, no such thing as luck. Um, the only way you could achieve luck was if you managed to win lotto without buying a lotto ticket or actually having one. To me, that was the only way you could have luck. So it's kind of interesting how you talk about for coming into these positions in life because of luck. You know, for me, it's like, well, no, you made that happen. You made a choice to end up in that situation. Who ended up being there? That was just circumstance in a way. But uh, yeah, really fascinating. Um, it's uh, look. I think. I think. And it's it's something which, which again, as I said, I'm very grateful for. Uh, you know, uh, serendipity, luck, call it what you want. But of course, as I said, you've got to be prepared for it, and you've got to anticipate it increasingly. The more you anticipate, the more you can prepare. Therefore, the chance of you optimizing when the break comes, you know, all that kind of is very important. You, if you're conscious of it and you build it, then that becomes a very big driver for you. But again, it goes back to optimizing as a cricketer, as a teenager, uh, who wanted to just get runs to hold his head high as a captain. That was my base case motivation. It wasn't about, you know, mentioning the newspaper the next day or being a hero. It was more about credibility with my peers. So, and, I, and that's always been the case, even professionally. If I'm working and advising a company, I need to be able to, you know, walk the walk, which I'm talking. Uh, I may not be the best at it, but I can do a pretty decent job of it. And then, you know, that's why you go to other people. Uh, and it's fascinating. I, I was lucky again at university. My biggest motivations uh, to get good grades at St. Stephen's College was to be able to try and play cricket at Oxford or Cambridge. That was the primary rationale for why I worked my socks off in my final year of university when I stopped playing cricket. And, you know, thankfully I got, got good grades and eventually applied to both universities and uh, got a place at Cambridge. And I wish I'd gone to Oxford because it's a prettier ground and a better wicket to bowl on. But, uh, but you know, again, Cambridge was phenomenal. Um, you know, we had Derek Randall as our coach. You know, uh, I would say between six and eight of the squad had first-class contracts. Um, and suddenly I found myself as a bowling all-rounder rather than a batting all-rounder, uh, just struggling for a place in the first lot. Um, but, you know, I got to meet players and I got to meet people who were achievers. And that's been a, that's been a thread through my life. I've always been at the table of where I've been probably the 50th percentile. But just... Just being at that table has made me grow from 50 to 70 of itself. Whereas a lot of times the tendency is to go at the table when you're 90 percent time and you dominate. So it's always been the reverse psychology of that, right? And one of the guys I was fortunate enough to play some cricket with is a, is a guy called Ed Smith. Now, Ed Smith had a very successful career for Kent and then Middlesex and then played for England as well in 2003. And he's a very, very well-known sort of uh, broadcaster and author. Uh, he was... He was a, a, just finished a stint as um, chief selector for England for three years and quite transformative in the course of which they won the World Cup. But Ed's written a book, I think it's a third book called Luck. And he talks about how he met his wife on a train station. And, you know, uh, and you, you look back on cricket, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a very limited person. Cricket is my all and all of my life. Between nicking one early and having a play and a miss, between those two lie a hundred. And glory and validation and it's less than it's less than a centimeter um so you know if you have that perspective you know somebody could hit you, hit you for a six but get caught in the boundary that's only a yard away from being a six uh <laughs> you know a yard is not much when you've got a ground with a 90 yards bowler's back drive it's you know one percent uh, so it's been fascinating to sort of think about that and keep that in perspective. Even with COVID, it's helped us. You know, luck has been a big part of being in Singapore. I'm very grateful for where we are. Today. Yeah. It, it's 
It's uh, it's interesting because uh, my mum's side of the family, uh, uh, cricket was huge. So my uncle, uh, Brian Richards, managed to open the batting with Viv Richards at Somerset um, many, many many years ago, I wow. think in the 80s. Wow. Uh, so that's, you know, it's kind of something quite fascinating for them. But it's just talking about sport, it's made me think of something. I was having a conversation earlier today around, I was very fortunate growing up. I played a lot of sports, but two sports that I really thrived in um, to, to be in New Zealand squads for were uh, triathlon and field hockey. So two completely different wow. things. But you made me think about something here. Like when you, with triathlon, you know, I've raced in events where there are f- uh, up to six, 7,000 people. Only one person can win. Where I played field hockey where you've got a 50% chance of winning. <laughs> you then, and... And, but in field hockey, if you make a mistake, it's, it's not so obvious, right? There's a, the whistle blows and someone else gets the ball and away you go. Whereas then you yep. go cricket again, where as you say, it, it, it's millimeters between um, absolute success and getting out. And that has quite an influence on how the, the team may perform at the end of the day. But we go from a sporting world where, as uh, Simon Sinek's written a book uh, called um, The Infinite Game, and he talks about finite where you've got rules and you know where you stand, right? So sport is kind of like a finite game. You've got rules around how it happens. And, and this actual, his book is based on research by a professor, um, maybe a decade or maybe back in the 90s, early 2000s. But then you go from that where you know where you stand, right? You know where you stand as a cricket player. Um, I know where I stood as a triathlete and a field hockey player. But then you go into the world of corporate land. How do you know where you, where you, then where you stand? How do you know where you are in the world or, or even nationally? Like, it's so hard to compare. So it becomes an infinite game because there are no rules. There, like You can't compare yourself to someone else because the playing field is so different. So for you from a mindset point of view, you've gone from playing cricket to now moving into, you know, the media world and things like that. How do you, how do you, um, define performance or success in your corporate life? So yeah, great question. Let me take a step back. You spoke about triathlon and being one of 10,000 and you spoke about hockey and having 50% chance of winning, um, and how, you know, mistakes and errors can get papered over because the referee blows a whistle and you stop the ball and start again. Same thing happens in basketball, football, and rugby, which are, again, teams of 11 to 15 players. It does not happen in cricket. No. Cricket, if you get out or if you get hit for a six, it's a very obvious, explicit um, uh, error that has been committed or achievement, as you mm-hmm. want to look at it, right? That's my first point. Secondly, cricket doesn't have rules, if you don't know. Cricket has laws. Mm. It doesn't have rules. Cricket as a game has not got any rules. It's got laws. Um, and laws are open to interpretation, whereas rules are not. Mm-hmm. And you can have grades and laws of interpretation. And therefore, I'm saying this because when you start going into real life and corporates, organizations have got laws. They haven't got rules. They've got cultures and mores, but they haven't got procedures and SOPs, much as they claim that they do. Um, your team is a team of competing, ambitious, competent, or incompetent individuals. Um, your team knows that their success is a dependency. You can only get a wicket if somebody takes a catch. Uh, so I think I think transitioning from, and therefore to be a captain of a cricket team, uh, is 
pretty good training to to deal with and build and optimize teams in a corporate environment where they're competing agendas, often multiple agendas, more often not unlined, misaligned agendas. Um, that's one. Two, there is a there is a structure of roles, but um, unlike a goalkeeper or a striker, these goals are not univariate in the impact that they are seeking. So there's that element to it as well. Um, and third, unlike basketball and football and hockey, where you can have substitutions, in cricket, you really can't. In a corporate environment, you really can't. Yeah. Um, so in those is an analogy in the parallels that I would draw in terms of the distinction of how cricket can impact, influence, inform, you know, a corporate dynamic. And I think that's irrespective of whether it's a startup or an SME or corporate or a blue chip, which is listed. Uh, I think those, or, or even, you know, we do increasingly work with the governments. Um, you know, those, those are very uh, fluid environments, but, you know, having laws helps. Having rules often doesn't help. Having competing agendas is a normal. It's more about how do you hurt the cats. Um, and it's just about evidence and being fact-based and logical. Because that's the only thing which really cuts through. Because um, we live in an age where transparency is very important. And a lot of people struggle with it. Mm. In cricket, your averages can't lie. No. It's... <laughs> and, and look, I've never had this type of conversation. It's kind of going in a little bit different direction than... I was thinking, but I think it's really good. Like the, the, you know, cricket is quite close to the corporate world. You know, like you think about it, someone can produce the best product, but if someone doesn't sell it well, it's like a drop catch, in a way. Yep. It totally. It's the same thing, and it's yeah, it's really interesting. It's a great way to look at it. I can be a, I can be a dud product, and you've got a master salesman who hits his numbers because he or she's going to get a bonus because they want a mortgage and they're going to get married or start a family, and that motivation suddenly makes a dud product, which is a lemon, um, a bestseller. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at the positives and the negatives rather than just looking at you know, negatives only. Mm. There's always the case. The team can always do well. And you know the sense of camaraderie comes from doing well from the most unexpected quarters yeah. rather than from the expected quarters. That's the biggest thing I've learned as, as a cricket captain. You know, you wait, we wait for that moment where somebody comes out from somewhere and just turns the tables for good or bad, mm. <laughs> both ways. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's the unexpected, but that's life. Uh, it certainly is life. Now, you, you know, we haven't even really delved into sort of the big areas you do and kind of the digital space and, and even how you um, produce things and collaborate and, and work on things around the world. But I'm, I'm really curious, you know, innovation over the last sort of few couple of years. For you, how have you seen innovation shifting in the way companies look at it or, or we are able to utilize it in this day and age? I think, I think innovation has, has, has um, gone from being, um, from, from being um, a progressive thought to um, a potential requirement to being a compulsion or a necessity. Uh, and I think if I sort of if I track my sort of having 
on my own journey, having gone solo in 2015, in that period, it's really gone from, it's a good idea, we should talk about it and, you know, come into a workshop, do a lunch and learn, do a brown bag, whatever, to actually, you know what you said, the last time we came in, that that time might have come for our business in Japan or in Australia or in Malaysia. Can you have a chat with the company manager and have a chat to, oh my God, I can't work out my forecast for the next 12 to 20, 36 months. Mm. You know, we need to radically pivot um so i, I think i think it's, it's very much the, the progressiveness which is good to have nice form fuzzy feeling to this might be a solution to a, a need which is very tactical to actually i need to do to redefine myself to maintain as you said at the beginning you know relevance which breeds reach which breeds revenue which is the whole three hours principle and framework that we always work to so i think that that's that's my first point i think my second point is that innovation is very 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 culturally situated mm. You know, people think of innovation as tech. You know, a pricing strategy can be innovation. A human capital strategy can be innovation. Uh, an org structure can be innovation. You know, Netflix not having a holiday policy back in the day, famous conversation, was an innovation. Um, so it doesn't have to be technology or materially enabled or, you know, facilitated. So I think there's, there's a lot more that we are capable of thinking and doing rather than have technology help us do. So that's, uh, that's my second point. And my third point is that it doesn't have to be big bang. You know, it can be incremental. I'm really influenced by a lot of Japanese thinking. You know, a lot of what I do really is is uh, ikigai. Yep. Ikigai is a Japanese notion of combining passion with profession, with personal personality, and all that kind of stuff. It's a huge part of what I've done the last sort of five ten years without knowing that a framework exists. <laughs> so there's, but they, but the Japanese also have a time tested it was more in the automotive and manufacturing sector the notion of kaizen yep. and kaizen is incremental change on a continual basis goes back to you know my coach telling me about optimizing yourself um so you know innovation is culturally located whether it's individuals people countries economies uh, it is it is increasingly a need if not a, a dire need and it, it doesn't have to be big bang and all of us are winners it can suddenly be something that you suddenly look back on a quarter or six weeks and you do a couple of sprints and you see, oh, okay, this, wow, this has legs. And then, you know, then the sort of self-motivation kicks in. So those are the three points I would sort of make on innovation as a starter. Mm. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time I did something for the first time? That's a great question. Um, you might need to edit this pause uh, <laughs> for me to think through. Um, uh, three weeks ago, and this is this is me being me. Um, I've been I've been I've taken up cycling a lot during COVID, and uh, it's really helped. You know, from four or five kilometers, twenty kilometers, twenty-five kilometers, I've done it. And then there's, you know, where I live on the east coast of Singapore, all the way down to Changi Village, it's about a 65, 70 kilometer return ride. And I had a pretty intense week about three weeks ago. And literally I said to the missus, look, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going for a ride. I'll be back in an hour or so. I came back after three and a half hours. <laughs> and I just biked to the point that I was, I was cycling with the singlet. and you know, burnt myself badly and all that kind of stuff. And I had to call them halfway through saying, I'm alive, don't worry. And, you know, go and get some snacks to get the energy up. I think, I think that to me is probably something that I haven't done for a long time, which is 
you know, be in the moment, have the flexibility and the autonomy to just push oneself and see how far one goes physically. I think it's fair to say I'm probably in a better state than I am physically today, physiologically today than uh, probably 10 years. And it's, it's funny how home-cooked food and sleeping in the same bed and being the same time zone really does well for your well-being. So I, I think that's that's probably one thing that I would I would say that I haven't done for a long time, but I have done, but that was not planned. That was in the moment. Hmm. The one thing I will say that I have done in the last 12 months is I have sought people out from my past um, who I've lost touch with, who I may or may not have been close to. They may not know that I had high regard for them. But I've reached out to them. and I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. It's a great tool to find people. And spoken to them. You know, in the last 18 months, there are probably about 30-odd people I've spoken to who I haven't spoken to in 20 years, 30 years. And, you know, I would say even 10 of those 30, sort of, they're like, yeah, whatever, the classmate or the batchmate or the teammate. Or, or a colleague. Um, so that's something which I've done in a very um, concerted, deliberate manner. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's very good. I like it. Everyone uh, approaches it a little bit different. Uh, great which question. Is, which is great. What is the one question that you would love to solve? How does one acquire wisdom whilst one still has the energy? I like it. Very, very good. Because if you look at sport, right? I mean, I, I was lucky to sort of play cricket with a lot of guys who went on to play for India. These were guys at 17, 18 who were competing with men who were in their 30s. And, you know, by their 30s, there was diminishing return on talent. There was, you know, professional pressures to make a living. These were battle-hardened pros. And these were kids who used to shave three times a week because the stubble wasn't big enough. You know? Uh, and I look back on them, and I'm like, and I began to play decent cricket in my 30s. I probably played my best cricket when I stopped, a decade after I stopped, because I worked it out in my mind. But by that time, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get more than four or five hundreds in a season of 30 matches. Mm -hmm. And these guys were getting one every two games at 18. So, you know, how do you sort of collapse that wisdom at a time when you have the energy and also the mental ignorance of not knowing better? Mm -hmm. Because I think if you look at this whole wave of startup and, uh, and, and and founders in India in particular, these are kids who would have gone to the U.S. on an H-1B visa without a, without a second thought. But because India has become hot, money is available, entrepreneurship is socially acceptable, and they don't necessarily want to go to the U.S. Uh, as a choice or as a compulsion, but they don't know any better. So they've just dumped, jumped right in and they come to me and I'm like, jeepers, you haven't had a big problem. You realize how big this is politically. You know, you're going to have a lot of people on your backs. Mm. Uh, but I love that because they've got, they've got the chops, they've got the energy, they've got the ignorance. But how do you collapse that? I think that, to my mind, and that, that's, that's a big motivation for me to work with them. You know, um, because, you know, I can help them get to where they want to get to, you know, through two phone calls a week of an hour each. Uh, because they've got the drive and they've got, you know, the ability to sort of carry on and, and, and a life stage to do that. So I think that whole wisdom is in the energy, Pete. I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, <laughs> I wish I could solve that. <laughs> a very good question. Uh, who's an inspiring great leader you look up to and why? Oh, mate. Um, so I think I, I think I mentioned Imran Khan and Martin Crow. Uh, and there were, there were huge, huge influences on me. Um, and, and it's, it's really interesting about how 
their playing careers and their post-playing careers have continued to influence me. Mm. Um, and I would I would caveat that by saying this is until the point that you know Imran Khan and his political party got into politics. But the very fact that somebody in '92 after the World Cup said, you know, I want to build this cancer hospital and I want to understand my people, etc., 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 and gave himself 20 years to actually realize what his ambition was, I think that's a huge piece. And then if you look back on his cricketing career, 75, there's a famous photograph of Intikhab Alam introducing Imran Khan to the Queen at Lord's, and he'd forgotten his name. So, you know, and he was supposed to be, you know, privileged guy who just got a squad and he was at Worcester and then went on to Oxford and stuff. But, but you know, he, he I still remember reading his book 20 years ago, All Round View, was his, his, his autobiography, and he sort of talks about how, you know, how he reshaped his entire bowling action. Um, and you know how he worked on worked on it, and you know remodeling your entire action is, is a big, big deal. It's a huge thing to do. Mm. Uh, but you know to redefine yourself to go to the next level, often you have to do that. More often than you have to do that. So he did that, and he ended up with turning wickets and winning the World Cup and all that kind of stuff. So I think that that's whole sort of the playing and the post-playing careers of Imran Khan have been a big inspiration. Um, the fact that, you know, he was popular with the ladies, I think Wooden was not lost in a teenage boy or, or a man who's now middle-aged, but um, he can only think rather than do. Um, and then, then Martin Crow, I think I think his battle, I, I think tactically, this whole white ball with Deepak Patel, uh, the, the season he had at Somerset, um, you know, he he's not spoken as much about as Richard Hadley is in New Zealand cricket. Um, but, you know, he was he was transformational. You know, Hadley was an all-rounder. All-rounders very rarely make good captains. I think Imran Khan was an exception. Martin Crowe, you know, he he redefined the belief of of of, of a team. He redefined the rules of the game. He was amongst the earliest guys to have. I think it was a cricket six or the cricket eights, which you had in New Zealand, the super eights, yes. which was the abridged yep. version of cricket back in the late nineties. I remember sort of doing that with Peter in India eight ten years later. Um, so, you know, thinking about the game, um, writing, very, very, very articulate, very incisive, insightful writer. And then, you know, him being open with the with the cancer, which we lost him to, um, you know, being very open with that. And, you know, the, 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 the kind of impact he had on 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 mentors. And, you know, he uh, that's the other thing about Imran and Martin Crow. You know, they 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 led from the front as performers. They led as captains. They mentored the next sort of, you know, um, uh, the next next bunch of cubs coming through, um, and you know that 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 really redefined. And they continue to do that uh, in, into their even after they're, they're playing with whether it's Wasim or Wakar or whether it's Chris Keynes and you know all the rest of that. So I think I think that mentorship, that leadership, and that performance, and how they didn't they went beyond the sport which gave them fame and a sustenance. To redefine causes that they were involved in, and you know, unfortunately, cancer is the common common uh, variable. But um, but yeah, those are the two, to my mind, which which stick out the most. Um, as I said, a lot of my life is defined by cricket, so I'm very limited. Yeah. I can't talk about a Gandhi or a Lee Kuan Yew or a you know or or uh, or somebody else. I, I kind of I, and it's, it's kind of saying you know we've got New Zealand, which has you know five million four just under five million people, and India is a big you know, big country, one of the biggest in the world. And uh, you're talking about cricket between the two nations. And here we are, you know, we've, we're both in the World Test Series championship 
uh, and then you've got you know the IPL right now where you've got Stephen Fleming and Brendan McCullum who are the coaches of both teams are in the final. Yep. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great connection between the two countries. And I know I've got quite a few staff in India as well, which is, uh, so it's beautiful. Look, it's, 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 I think, I think, I think the, 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 the tall poppy syndrome, which is, you know, a very Kiwi thing. I think it's a very, um, positive thing. Uh, I always talk about, you know, the, in some of the conversations I have with people who build ecosystems and startup accelerators and you know, industry associations and stuff, I always look at New Zealand, Singapore and, 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 and Israel. I don't know if you've read a book called Startup Nation. Same mm-hmm. kind of populations. Yeah. Same kind of populations. Um, and, you know, Singapore is probably in the middle of the two where it's highly competitive, kiasu, which is the competitive nature, but yet very egalitarian. Every citizen can have a home by right, by law. Uh, on the other hand, is, is New Zealand sort of smart, well-achievers, but very balanced and in a very secure environment. Uh, and then Israel, which has always had, you know, the shadow of conflict and physical safety uh, for 30 years. But then there's conscription and national service for men and women. Mm. Singapore's only got it for men. New Zealand hasn't got it at all. And, and, and all of them are trying to define and have by, by intent or by happenstance spawned a bunch of startups. Mm. You know, it's fascinating. You know, you have the grabs and the razors and the garinas here in Singapore and you have umpteen such, such companies in Tel Aviv. And similarly in, in Auckland, Wellington, who then go to the U.S. and grow from there. Um, fascinating. I'm fascinated by that. I'm really fascinated by that. And uh, I, I think it was it was it was great for world cricket that 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 you know Kane and the team won the World Test Championships um, because people forget is New Zealand is a massive overachiever in world cricket. They've been in I would say half a dozen World Cup semifinals yeah. and a couple of finals. It's it's very big. It's uh, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, but then again, rugby, you know, phenomenal. The track record you've got in rugby for the country of that size. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, the cultural nuances are, are very revealing. Yeah. Well, we could talk, keep talking uh, for, for days. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, uh, Unmish, it's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And, you know, I know a number of people would, would love to continue, you know, stay connected in some way and see the work that you're doing. So how can people learn more f- from what, uh, learn more about what you do and what is the best place for people to connect with you? Sure. Um, so look, I think, I think I pretty much live my life on LinkedIn. Um, so LinkedIn is the best place to get in touch with me, uh, email me, and I typically will get back to you within 24 hours, if not sooner. Um, uh, it's the only social media network that I'm really active on, genuinely. I subscribe to their premium service. Uh, as of March, I'm one of their social influencers here in the region. Um, and I find it a very, very efficient way of keeping across, you know, the four areas, gaming, education, media, and sport, the gem sector that, you know, we work across. Typically, the algorithm sort of feeds me the right things in the newsfeed, which is very good. So, yeah, LinkedIn, is, it very much is. I think LinkedIn.com forward slash Unmish, or if you just search for me, that's U-N-M-I-S-H, uh, then you'd be able to find me, and I promise to come back to you within 24 hours. Very good. All right. We'll pop that in the show notes as well. Uh, it's been a really enjoyable conversation and I, I love that you've taken us back into your early days and the, the people that influenced who you are now uh, along the path. And it's always, it, it's so nice to hear that you had such great role models who are very clear in your mind how they've helped uh, you through that times. To 
gain an understanding what uh, how you've taken things from your cricket world into your leadership world and startup and and so many similarities and what you've been able to to how you've been able to transfer those skills uh, to be really really successful I've really loved your insights and and the way that you use story a lot and how you connect with us emotionally uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today so thank you very much for your time no, Craig, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I hope this has been useful for, for your audience. As I was saying at the beginning of the call, you know, life has a way of working itself out. Uh, it's more about keeping your faith in people and just being aware of what's around you. I've been very lucky with the people I've known, worked for, worked with, uh, played with, uh, studied with. So I'm very grateful. And I'm also grateful for this opportunity. So thanks very much. And I hope it uh, helps you and your business and wish you the very best. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.